Good morning, everyone. It's always good to be here um, speaking with you about the wonderful things in the Bible. We're here on our second week in the book of Acts. And uh, I think a lot of people like to use the book of Acts as sort of a blueprint, right, for what the church should look like. And so where I work with, we actually deal with blueprints quite a bit. Uh, now, they're not actually blue anymore. They're just prints, black and white color. Um, but the idea behind them is that someone has worked out all the details that you need, and they put it down on paper so that if you want to accomplish your goal, all you have to do is follow these instructions. So if you follow the blueprint, things will turn out right. For example, if you wanted to build this beautiful church shown here, you'd follow all the instructions. And when you were done, you'd have a church that looked like that. The converse is true, too. If you don't follow the blueprints, things can go wrong. Like these guys here with the bridge that didn't meet in the middle. You can see them stand there looking at the blueprints going, what happened? See, it's not just enough to have the blueprints. They need to be good. And we'll be working off the Bible so we know our blueprints are good. But you also have to follow them. Now, I've given contractors blueprints and seen what they built and wondered, did they even look at them? Did they open them? Did they see what was in them? So today we're going to look at the book of Acts as an example of what we should do as a church. And in fact, the Brethren movement was very much started as an effort to return the church closer to the state it was back when it first started. Now, Acts is a running narrative, um, gives us a lot of information about the early church, and it takes place in parallel to many of Paul's letters. Um, and a lot of his letters are also follow-ups to churches that he's uh, visited while he was on the journeys recorded in Acts. And I think these letters give us a really very real and honest assessment of the early church. And we learned from the early church that things weren't always as idealized as we like to think. Uh, we can see that the early church did suffer from a number of problems, such as they had failures of leadership. They had heresies, bad behaviors. They suffered from rumors and gossips, always destructive and they failed to act on the scripture. So again, it's a reminder that the early church was not as idealized as we sometimes imagine. Uh, in fact, when you look at it, you can really see it's a miracle of God that the church came to be at all. I mean, in addition to all these problems, think about it. The church was far flung in a time of very slow communication, right? They had almost no professional teachers, no seminaries, no pro properties, no church buildings, anything like that. And yet, it survived, it grew, and it thrived. And of course, why? Well, this shouldn't surprise us, because the God of miracles is behind it. And we could be sure that he was working as the church developed. So today, as we look at the church a little bit, uh, we're going to just lead off by praying and making sure that we ask God to guide us through this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples that uh, you give us in there of what a church should be. And Lord, it's our sincere desire to be the church that you want us to be. So Lord, we pray as we go through this, that we would just learn from your word, that we would follow it, and that we would put it into practice as you desire for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as I mentioned, the early church had some good, and had some bad. And I'd say that what we're going to cover today is pretty much the church at its best, right? So if we're looking for a good blueprint to follow, what we're going to go over today 
is it. So hopefully as we look at that, we're going to see what it tells us to do and how we can do it. So today's passage is Acts 1, 12 through 247. Um, and it contains four distinct portions that take place uh, sequentially. So we'll spend maybe half an hour in each of them. Get you guys out of here. No, we'll, go quick. we'll go quicker than that. Um, but they're, they can be broken down as uh, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Peter addresses the crowd uh, and the fellowship of the believers. Now, there's nothing special about that breakdown. Uh, there's a good chance your Bible has already broken it down to those four sections. And in fact, the list I just read was just copying the headings that are in the Bible I use. Um, but as I said, each of those describes a distinct series of events that take place in sequence. And our goal today is to pull something from each of these that both will stand on its own. It's a piece of advice for us and a blueprint to look at. And also that fit within the overall context of God's plan for the church. So I'd say for our purposes today, I want to focus on the theme of the healthy church. And so I'm going to rename these headings that were in my Bible. I'm going to rename it as the healthy church practices godly waiting. The healthy church embraces the spirit. The healthy church preaches the gospel with power. The healthy church lives as brothers and sisters. So today, as we hit on the key ideas from each of these, we're going to focus mainly on the first three. And that's partially due to time and partially recognizing that Acts 2, 42 through 47 gets covered quite frequently. Um, now, there's too much of the text to read the whole thing this morning as well. So I'm counting on the fact that either you're familiar with this passage uh, or you read it in advance of the uh, sermon today. So as I mentioned, Acts is a running narrative. And like any good series, here's just a little recap of what happened before we got to this point. So the resurrected Jesus is wrapping up 40 days of ministering to his disciples, right? He spent this time teaching them and also convincing them it was really him, that he really was alive and had come back from the dead. And just prior to ascension, he gives them some final instructions. He instructs them to go and wait. Now, this must have been difficult for the disciples to hear. And we can see that they didn't get it because one of them asked, aren't you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? This is sort of the same misplaced hope that has followed Jesus, his whole ministry. He says, no, I'm going away and you're supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait. This was not at all what they wanted to hear, right? They had just gotten Jesus back from the dead and now he's going away again. And I think they wanted to maybe say to themselves, Jesus, haven't we waited long enough? I mean, really, we've been waiting for centuries, right? The scriptures are predicting this for centuries. And then when we knew the time of your birth was here, we got excited and we waited for that. And then when your ministry started, we got excited and we waited. And then we were crucified, put in the ground, we waited. And then when you rose, we came and we learned from you and we waited. Haven't we waited enough? But instead he says, no, I'm going away and I'm sending you to wait. And he's going to give them some instructions about what they're supposed to do. And we ourselves are waiting, right? We're waiting for the time when Jesus returns. And when he does, this time he is going to restore his kingdom. 
So I think that there's a lot we can learn about godly waiting by looking at how the church approached this when they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So even though maybe they were disappointed, they did what he had asked. They went to Jerusalem and they waited. Let's just take a little bit of a look at what they did while they waited. So verse 114, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so we can see here is that they prayed expectantly while they waited, and they prayed constantly. And the lesson for us as a church is, do we pray constantly for what the Lord has promised us? Do we pray together? Are we joined together in prayer? And it wasn't just the leaders that were praying. This was the church praying as a body. It says they all joined together. Would an outside observer look at this church and say, now there's a church that prays together. So what else can we see that they did during this time of waiting? Well, verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. And so what they did here is they acknowledged the scriptures and they acted on them. They said, here's what the scripture says. Here's how it applies to our situation. And we need to act on it. See what their conclusion was? Therefore, it is necessary. It demonstrated understanding that the scriptures had to dictate their actions. And so again, the application for us is, first, do we know the scriptures? And are we willing to act on them when we see that they apply to our situation? When you hear what the Bible has to say, or if you read it for yourself, do you go out and do it? Or does something get in the way? Do you think, that's not my style? That's impossible. That's for someone else. The disciples saw the scriptures were telling them to act, and they went out and acted accordingly. They let the scriptures guide their actions, and we should do the same. Verse 17, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now, this is Peter speaking, right? We all know Peter. We like to talk about Peter. This is the Peter who 50 days earlier tried to kill someone. Then he ran away. Then he denied Christ. Then When Jesus was in the process of restoring him, he got frustrated. Then when Jesus told him about the future, his first question was, what about John? 50 days ago, he was not at all looking like leadership material. This same Peter now gets up as the leader and offers a well-reasoned and biblical course of action. He treats Judas gently, acknowledging his closeness alongside of his betrayal. The old Peter probably would have spit on the ground every time Judas's name was mentioned. But instead, he practiced Christ's character. He acknowledged Judas honestly, but without hatred. And he didn't fixate on what Judas did. He went about the work God had planned for him. And so we can see that while they waited, they were also demonstrating Christ's character. So 
So what's taking place here? Well, the church is in the process of replacing Judas because the scripture has told them to do so. And what was the purpose of going through this exercise? It was to build up the leadership. Verse 20, for Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. May there be another to take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. We need another person to be part of the team. And that's what they were doing. They were building a godly leadership team. There was a hole left by Judas. And while they waited, they recognized that it needed to be filled because of the scripture. We can also note some similarities here between the criteria that we have for deacons and elders. They wanted someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning, not a recent convert, someone who had heard every word that Jesus had spoken. And that's what we should expect here. Your elders should be immersed in the word. Now, that doesn't mean we know everything, but you have a right to expect that we are searching the scriptures and that we're familiar with the words handed down by God. So they have to pick a new disciple. And when it came to doing that picking, as far as we can see, there was no politicking, no deals, no compromise candidate. This wasn't about who people liked or wanted or didn't like and didn't want. Rather, it was about who God had chosen. And so they consulted God. It says in verse 24, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. In doing that, they avoided a common mistake in the Old Testament, which was to act without consulting God. For example, if you were to turn to Joshua 9.14, you would see how the people followed their own logic and fell into a trap. The Gibeonites set up a ruse, right? They got all this old moldy bread and old skins and things like that and said, oh, we've come from a long way. We want to make a treaty with you. And they said, oh, they're from far away. We can make a treaty with them. Uh, but they were deceived. They were tricked. And it says very distinctly in there, because they did not consult the Lord. And so they made that mistake. And here we see the disciples have avoided that mistake. Clearly, replacing Judas was a big decision. And it required consultation with God. But we should take care that we do not neglect inquiring of the Lord and what he would have us do in all situations. So what's the conclusion here? Well, I think the big takeaway, because it's hard to remember all this, is that waiting does not equal do nothing. So while they waited, the healthy church prays expectantly. The healthy church acts on the scripture. The healthy church practices Christ's character. The healthy church builds up the leadership. And the healthy church consults the Lord to make decisions. So I'm going to play a short clip from Fireproof. Uh, likely many of you have seen this movie. If you haven't, go see it. Um, it's really great. But the idea here is the main character, Caleb, has really treated his wife wrong. And she's finally had enough. And she tells him, it's over. And with some help from his parents, and of course God, Caleb undergoes a journey of transformation to save his marriage. And along the way, he becomes a Christian. 
And now he's at the end of his rope. All his efforts to win his wife back have failed. And so he turns it over to God and he's waiting to see what God will do. Hopefully we have sound with this. see this the theme there right it says while i'm waiting i will serve i will worship i will not faint but endure i'll move ahead bold and confident taking every step in obedience so think about that 
that while you wait, you're still moving forward. And I think it sums everything up well when it says, I'll be running the race even while I wait. So I think the lesson is well taught to us that waiting does not equal do nothing. The time you spend waiting on God still belongs to him and is meant to be used for his purposes. So now that we've seen how they waited, let's look at the fulfillment of their waiting, the promised Holy Spirit. So chapter two starts with, it was the day of Pentecost. Steve stole a little bit of my thunder, but can anyone tell me when Pentecost is celebrated this year? Today, yes. And this year it actually syncs up. It's the same date on the Jewish and the Christian calendar. So Pentecost was 50 days after the first fruits, which would have been the day Jesus rose from the dead. So if after Jesus was resurrected, he spent 40 days ministering to his disciples, we learn that in Acts 1-3, and the disciples spent about 10 days waiting. So officially Ascension Day is uh, Thursday, May 27th this year. So all that to say, I don't know if Alan planned this out, uh, but at least last week and this week were very closely synced up with the Christian holiday calendar. Now, the disciples weren't given a, a time frame, right? But they waited diligently, and after 10 days, the promise was fulfilled. So what did Jesus promise them? Well, in Acts 1.8, it said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. The Spirit came and gave power and enabled them to be his witnesses. We read in chapter 2, verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So the spirit came in the form of fire. Now, there have been many depictions of this in art. We have no idea what it really looked like. However, I suspect that this depiction makes the fires look a little wimpy. I don't know if this is any better either, um, but I believe it was an awesome sight the Bible describes the sound of a violent wind. Now, if you've ever sat by a fire, a fire doesn't sound like wind, right? If you want a fire to sound like wind, you have to do one of two things. You have to have so much heat that you've generated a firestorm, like you have in a wildfire moving up the side of a mountain, or you need a completely pure source of fuel, like a blowtorch. You think about the spirit. When the spirit showed up in the Old Testament, he made the temple uninhabitable, right? They had to retreat from it. Or even think about the pillar of fire that God was manifesting himself in, right? It was large enough to be seen by an encampment of several million people. When the spirit came, something momentous happened. And I suspect that the spirit left no doubt to the observer the magnitude of what was happening. The spirit came with power as was promised. Now, I was speaking with my father earlier this week. He's actually sitting right back there. Uh, and I mentioned that I'd be preaching and what I'd be preaching on. And he said, well, at least there's nothing controversial. And I replied, yeah, of course, speaking about the Holy Spirit, filling people, and that everyone starts to speak in tongues. What could possibly go wrong? 
Now, I think we can admit to ourselves that we have some trouble with the Holy Spirit. Ironically, the Holy Spirit was given to help us with hard topics like this. Now, if when I say we struggle with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't apply to you, and you feel like I'm just projecting my own feelings upon you, that's fine. You can let all this roll off your back. But I'm fairly confident that most of us here do struggle with the Holy Spirit. But here's what we do know. The Holy Spirit cannot be ignored. He's one third of the Trinity. So this is a passage we'll be getting to later with Ananias and Sapphira. They presented their money to the Lord, pretending it was all the money they received. And Peter says to them, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So there's many verses, of course, that affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. But I like this one because there's a very direct correlation. It says you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then it says you didn't lie to humans, you lied to God. So it's very clear that the lie to the Holy Spirit was a lie to God. And I'd say, while we love looking at the Father, and each week we gather and set aside a time to adore Jesus, the Spirit we're much more hesitant to approach. Yet his role in the church and in our lives is absolutely crucial. We're going to look at some of those aspects. So let's consider his role in salvation, which is absolutely critical. John chapter 16, verse 8. When he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you will see me no more and judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So here we see that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. These are at the heart of the gospel message and the process of becoming a Christian. We can't teach these to unbelievers. Only the Holy Spirit can. So we cannot cut him out of the process of salvation. His role in Christian development is also crucial. If we want to grow to be everything Christ wants us to be, we need the Spirit. John 16, 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you of things to come. So I think we can admit that when it comes to our Christian journey, we are not competent to guide ourselves. We need the spirit. His role in sharing the gospel is critical. Now that's a job that was given to every single one of us. And yet we can't do it without him. Luke 12, 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, do we really want to do it on our own, apart from the Spirit? Would I really rather use my own words over his? I don't think so. His role in understanding the scripture is critical. John fourteen twenty four. He who does not love me does not keep my words, 
and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father is sending in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. And so if I want to learn something about biology, I go to Larry. If I want to know something about math, I go to Alan. If I want to know something about paint, I go to Jimmy or I go to Mark, right? I don't wing it. I go to the expert. So why, when it comes to the Bible, would I try and wing it on my own when there's a teacher who is infinitely capable and fully available to me? I'd be a fool to try and do it on my own, to claim that I know the very words of God better than the author. Again, not a place we want to go. We need the spirit. What else do we know about him? He's the comforter, the counselor, the helper. I know this because those are the names that Jesus gives him. Now, I think in large part, we fail to embrace the spirit because we want to separate ourselves from certain groups that participate in sort of a mysticism around the spirit uh, that makes us nervous. We believe that they overinterpret, overstep, and they describe the role of the spirit. And I think we're cautious with good cause. We have to know that there is great danger and even the slightest sense that the Bible might need something added to it, or that there's a new message, or some sort of secret knowledge that we need another to unlock for us. But we all need the Spirit, and we can't afford to throw out the baby with the bathwater just because some parts of his role are confusing or frighten us. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to claim that in five minutes I'm going to undo centuries of controversy. However, I would suggest that without fully acknowledging the spirit, we cannot fully acknowledge the triune God that we serve. And we must treat the spirit like any other aspect of Christianity, where the teaching in the Bible is clear, we must fully embrace it. And where we cannot find clarity, we should pray and ask the spirit to teach us, to make those texts clear. And when we do have clear texts, we should use those to interpret what is unclear, for example, the Bible makes it very clear that the scripture message is complete. So we know that we're not looking for any new scripture. So we shouldn't be looking for the spirit to deliver new scripture. However, we should also be gracious to our fellow Christians who approach the spirit differently and not allow this issue to destroy a sincere faith or the fellowship of the body that we're called to. Now, of course, the big stumbling point is usually tongues. Now, in this case, the text we have today and the context makes it clear that what's going on here is someone speaks in their native language and someone else hears it in their own native language, even if it's different. The good thing about this is that it's easily identifiable, easy to test. Thomas probably would have loved this one. He could get his proof or his disproof and moved on. So as far as what's happening in Acts chapter 2, I don't think there's any problem. It seems pretty clear. However, when it comes to the tongues expressed in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we don't really know from the Bible exactly what that practice entails. And I, for one, don't think it's an appropriate matter for experimentation. With all that is clear about the spirit in the Bible, if we were meant to practice tongues that way, the scriptures would have made the practice clear to us so we could do it pro properly, and it has not done that. 
So when it comes to the spirit, think about how different this story would have turned out if Peter and his disciples had just said, this is just way too much for us to wrap our heads around. We don't want to have a part of it. And they try to take the spirit, stuff it in a box, and put it on the shelf. And praise God, as we can see in just a few minutes, they didn't try and do that, but they embraced the spirit. And we shouldn't try and box up the spirit either. He's way too big for us to contain. And he wants us to embrace him just as we embrace the father and the son. So now we're going to look at preaching the gospel with power. Now, the power of the gospel preaching that took place here is undeniable. In one day, we started with a hostile audience making fun of them. And at the end of the day, 3,000 came to be saved. That makes what took place here pretty good for us to look at and use as an example of what we should do. So let's take a look at what we can learn from the gospel message that was presented here. Well, first, as we've already seen, it was spirit-driven, right? It started with the filling of the spirit. And the spirit brought them out from the upper room where they were hiding down to the people who needed the gospel. Second, the gospel message was founded on the scriptures. Now, I didn't do a word count, but about half of what Peter spoke is quotes from the Old Testament. The other crucial aspect, and this was brought up in the breaking of bread meeting, is that the message was focused on Christ. Now, I know this goes without saying, but we're going to say it anyway, and we're going to take a look at it. First, Peter spoke about who Christ was. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves now know. Then he focused on Christ's death and resurrection. Him being delivered by determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So it makes it very clear that Jesus died, but the death had no power over him. And then he makes sure that he addresses the final state of Christ, which is one of exaltation. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, makes it absolutely clear Christ was no ordinary man. He was fully God and fully man, and now he's been restored to his rightful place. That's the Jesus of the gospel. The other aspect is that the gospel must provide the way of salvation, and Peter doesn't neglect this. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter provided them with a clearly defined choice. I struggle with this part. I don't like to deliver high-pressure sales tactics, and the stakes don't get any higher than eternal salvation. But here's the thing. When it comes to salvation, I don't close the deal. 
no matter how good a job I do presenting the gospel, no matter how lousy a job I do presenting the gospel. Not what I've said or what I've done. God, through the Holy Spirit, draws men and women to his son. We just have the privilege of being a part of it. Now we're going to look at the last part, living as brothers and sisters. Now this passage gets preached on a lot, and uh, our time on it is going to be brief. Um, But I do recall when I was part of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew, every year the leadership team, this was the lesson they taught, because that was the kind of community they wanted us to emulate. And it's generally held up as sort of the ideal manifestation of the church. It's what we want here. And it's what we expect to see in heaven. We look at them and we can see that they were devoted to learning and teaching and praying and serving and spreading the gospel. And we love to look at this passage with longing and say, maybe someday. Maybe someday. But really, I'd like to look at it as an expansion on what we saw under godly waiting. Except this time it's not just for a period, but it's for a lifestyle. So we want it, but the question is, how do we live it out? Look what it talks about. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. So this is what we want. We want to live in that close fellowship. We want to see the Lord working. We want to see him adding to those who are being saved. So the question is, how do we get to this point? I would suggest that just like that passage started with the things that they devoted themselves to, that you get there by devoting yourself to the right things. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. So we're going to jump over to Ephesians for a minute, and hopefully this adds some clarity to it. But Ephesians 5.28, in the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So hopefully you can see the connection. It all comes down to what you love. The church is Christ's body. And if you love him, you will love his body. Now, we all want to go to a church that says, come as you are. And we want to come as we are. But it gets difficult when everyone else shows up just as they are. You see, loving the body is not something we can do on our own. Christians on their own are just not lovable enough or loving enough to make it work. Rather, it's something that we accomplish through Christ. 
That's what makes the church exceptional. We love others because he first loved us. He gave us the perfect example of love. And if you want to make this the type of church that you see in the Bible, the thing we have to do first and foremost is make Christ our first love. Because if we love him, we will love his body, which is the church. And then we will care for it and we will nurture it the way that's described in Acts chapter 2. So let's just sum up here. I know I've said a lot. Hard to remember everything. But maybe just key back in on these couple of ideas. We want to be a healthy church. And so the healthy church practices godly waiting. The healthy church embraces the spirit. The healthy church preaches the gospel with power. And the healthy church lives as brothers and sisters. And it's my prayer that we'll be a healthy church. Not that we're unhealthy now, but we can always do better. Just like anyone that wants to be healthy keeps exercising, looking to be stronger and faster. As a Christian church, we exercise these disciplines that are laid out for us in the Bible and we become progressively a more and more healthy church. And that's what we want because a healthy church glorifies the Lord. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. It's such a blessing. Um, Lord, you've given each of us a role and a place in it. We pray, Lord, that we would just diligently follow the blueprints that you've laid out. We pray that our hearts would be fully devoted to you and to your scripture. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would just have the pleasure and the joy of seeing you work. Pray for everyone here, Lord, that... Uh, you would be their first love, and that by being their first love, it would manifest itself in the love and the care they have for the body here. We pray these things in your name. Amen.